Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists, and you're listening to Global Caveat. Today we have a super special guest joining us to talk about documentary filmmaking as education and activism. And now that we are a nonprofit status pending, um, we are super excited about the things that we will be doing in the future. You can keep an eye out or rather ear out for things that will be happening hopefully in November. Is that when is now? Now is September. Today is September 22nd, (laughs) the day that we're recording. This episode will be airing sometime in October. So it's October for you, but it's September for us. Um, and events will start happening in November. <laughs> Yay! And then Yay. Um, hopefully yeah. by then we will be pushing our first merch, which is a really awesome Woo. sticker that Christian, our other team member, has put together. So I'm super excited to push that out and for people to start putting it on everything that they own. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that. Yes. Um, but yeah, we are super stoked to dive right in and learn about um our guests for today and you may be asking well what's the connection between documentary filmmaking and education and activism with global health but that is why we're here because everything is global health right (laughs) (laughs) so everything um, is related everything is everything that's my conclusion um yeah so today we're going to introduce and jelena or is it jelena Yes, it's Jelena, like Angelina without the and. Okay, so I'm super excited to introduce Jelena Keenly as our guest today. Jelena Keenly is a director, cinematographer, and producer who explores intergenerational trauma healing through an intersectional lens. Jelena is the co-founder of Break Tide Productions, an all-women of color video production company rooted in intersectional solidarity. Break Tide has carried out national video campaigns for brands like Nike and Thinks, and their branded content has won two, is it Can Lion Awards? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. It's like that, one of those like French words where it's like, oh, comms lion, can lions. I don't know. I think it's cans. <laughs> Um, and in 2019, we're named to YDCA's 100 list of change makers. Jelena produced a short film for Independent Lens and her film... Her films have screened at the UNHIFF, CAMFest, and LAAPFF. These are all really fancy acronyms. She has been supported by NextDoc, the Jacob Burns Creative Culture Fellowship, PIC, and Mia Tarot. Whew. Thank you, Jelena, for being here. <laughs> yeah, wow. Thank you so much for being here. You have done so many things. Um, so first welcome thank you for being on the show and to start things off i just want to ask since we're living in these times um how are you doing how's your how's your day been going pretty good so far um thank you so much for having me i'm really excited to be on the show and to be talking with both of you i feel like it is such you know intense times that we're living in. I feel like the word uncertain was very phase one of the pandemic and now we're all tired of hearing that. Um, And it definitely feels like there's been different phases and it's a lot of like personal growth um, throughout this time, but doing pretty good today, taking things one day at a time. And um, yeah, I'm excited to be talking about filmmaking and education, activism um, and how they all intersect. 
So Break Tie Productions, as a filmmaking organization or company, how have you been affected with all the COVID stuff going on and, um, you know, stay-at-home orders? Yeah, so we're a video production company. So usually we do productions that are in person with a, a bunch of crew and um, filming and, you know, all of that great stuff, which is what we love. We love being on set um, and getting to do that. So we did have to adapt a lot. And it's funny because we had this whole um, goal setting retreat in February and we had all these goals around, okay, we're going to scale up. We're going to be doing like larger productions with more people, like getting on bigger sets. <laughs> and then all of that stuff um, grinded to a halt as in many ways, like a lot of the world did and a lot of different industries did and um, we were lucky to have some ongoing clients um, and some other projects that we have still been able to do um, remotely on, on zoom like this is and um, also getting back into filming stuff but making sure we're being as safe as possible and having all of the proper um, restrictions in place and part of our model as a filmmaking production company um, and as three individuals who all started it together is that all of us are able to do um, many of the different aspects of filmmaking. So whether that's directing, producing, being the cinematographer, working with the camera, all that kind of stuff. So especially for our documentary projects, we all have experience being one woman band. So that's been really helpful in the time of the pandemic as people are adapting and it's um, a lot of emphasis is on, you know, less people being in the room because you want it to be safe as possible. So I think some of those skills that we already had in terms of flexibility and knowledge about different roles have been really helpful for this time. You in your intro, you say that you do um, your work on intergenerational trauma healing, and you do that through an intersectional lens. Can you talk a little bit more about um what that means and why you chose to go in that direction. Yeah, um, I can talk about one project that I'm working on now, uh, which hits all those themes very um, directly, which is called Standing Above the Clouds. Um, it's a short film, a 15-minute film that follows Native Hawaiian mother-daughter activists that are standing to protect their sacred mountain, Mauna Kea, from the building of the world's largest telescope. And so that short, we actually just released a curriculum to go along with it, um, which ties into education and activism, as you were mentioning in the beginning. Um, and it really explores, you know, what is it like to be standing alongside your mother and your daughter? And, you know, what are those differences and what are those challenges? And we have the short film and it's we were actually supposed to be traveling around the world during this time promoting the short film. And actually, we were we were all on our way to New Zealand to Aotearoa for the international premiere. We, our flight was on oh. March 18th, if you could believe it. Wow. <laughs> so we oh didn't. My gosh. Unfortunately, we didn't end up going. But um, it has been really great to be able to do stuff virtually, although it's not the same. But, you know, for health reasons, yeah. we've got to do what we got to do. And um, we're also expanding that project into a feature length documentary. So we've been continuing to film um, to really explore more of the nuances of, you know, what is it like standing alongside your mother? What are the things that come up? These like intergenerational trauma stories, um, the kind of healing that can happen on the front line and then the kind of healing that needs to happen in response to being on the front line. Um, and then just these like generational differences. And to me, one thing that I really think of when I think of uh, intergenerational healing and trauma is, you know, um, 
your your ancestors who can be people either directly related to you or not directly related to you who you just see as ancestors people who have given you knowledge about yourself and and your path in the world everything that they give to you you can you can you know take it in and decide whether or not you want to carry it on or not and to me that's what intergenerational healing means it's like you with respect you take the things that have been passed down to you but then you can decide actually i want to have more boundaries around the work that i do and have more time off or you can decide, you know, anything like that. But I think that's one of the big things that comes up even in my own family when I think about, you know, my mom versus me of this idea of like, you know, just put your head down, do the work and keep working, keep applying to more things. And that will kind of solve the problems. Whereas I feel like our generation is a little bit more focused on, you know, what are the times that we have to take off? Like, what does balance mean? And how can we strike that? And, um, you know, some people call it self-care, some people call it healing, community care, all these different words. But what does it mean to to see, um, you know, pouring into ourselves and doing work on ourselves as a part of activism? Because if you're not bringing your best self, then you're actually a detriment to the movement. And one of the main characters, Pua Case, um, in our film Standing Above the Clouds, she would always say on the front line, like, don't be detrimental to the movement. Don't be a detriment to the movement. And so it just kind of means like, you know, when you're there, you need to bring your highest self. But whatever you need to do to become your highest self is what you need to do. And that's also a part of activism. I love that. It's very... um it's very self-empowering, right? But then not just self-empowering for the sake of your individual self, but for the greater good as well, um, for your community or whatever work that you're involved in. I really love that. And I think that's kind of why, or that's not why, but that's a reason that especially in communities of color, especially among women of color, you know, sometimes taking time for yourself has been seen as more selfish, you know, where really, as one of my co-founders, Alex Bledsoe said, it's like, you know, to doubt yourself as a woman of color in this world, when everything is doubting us, it's redundant, you know, so we need to have that time to really pour into ourselves and be the best version of ourselves that we can be. And that is part of community work, because then you can be more ready to, you know, listen to someone else's problem, help someone else do whatever it is that you need to do in your path and the way that you participate in community. But that part, it's so important. And it's so I don't think it's necessarily talked about as much and not as glamorized, obviously, as doing some of the things that get more attention, like, you know, addressing a big crowd or, you know, passing some sort of policy or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So get therapy, do the bubble baths, do whatever it is that <laughs> yes. you can get some of that healing. <laughs> Although therapy is really hard. I will say that. Yeah. And that's the thing, too. Healing yeah. is not really glamorous, you know, like. But, no. I mean, I personally love a bath and that can be glamorous at times, but like the other parts of really, you know, sitting. And I think that's what this pandemic has forced many of us to do as well is like, you know, kind of eliminating certain distractions and having to sit with your own thoughts and your own self and, um, you know, what comes of that, what kind of stuff comes up that needs to be healed or needs to be processed. Mm. And I think that's why we're seeing so many movements too. It's like when, in this stillness, when we're seeing things super plainly as they are, it's like, how can we be letting these things happen? Um, and I think that's why we've seen so yeah. much action and so much civic engagement over this past summer. It's true. I feel like um, with self-isolation or stay-at-home orders, like you just said, I think in a way, physically, maybe we've been a little bit more stagnant. Um, but we have seen a lot of social movements happening and 
people coming together as a collective and community building. Um, and there's a lot of power to that. So I'm wondering, you know, how, how do you try to portray that or what kinds of stuff come up in terms of you seeing that as a filmmaker through the work that you do? Collectivization, collectivizing and collectivization is the most important part of my filmmaking journey, both behind the camera and in front of the camera. So that's kind of the story behind Break Tide Productions. Me and my two partners, Rhea Puri and Alex Bledsoe, we came together in 2018 and we were all freelancers um, pursuing filmmaking, but there was just all these different opportunities, all these things going on. It felt a bit chaotic for each of us individually. And then, you know, we came together and that made all the difference. So we had each other to rely on when it came to setting our rates, when it came to talking with clients, like writing out contracts, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we also had each other's body of work to combine into one Break Tide Productions body of work, which gave us the ability to, you know, um, pursue different jobs. And I think, um, I'm sure there's been studies about this and stuff like that, but as a woman and particularly as a woman of color, sometimes it's easy for easier for you to advocate for and root for like your close friend than it is for yourself. And so when we collectivize, all of a sudden it's yeah. not saying, Oh, hire me, Jelena Keen Lee. It's like, Oh, hire us break tide productions. And that gives like a different power to it. So I think that has made all the difference in terms of behind the scenes as a filmmaker. And then in terms of the things that I actually am filming, working together in community has been one of the most important things and um, something that I try to document to really show what leadership is. And the, there's this framework that was put forth by Dr. Ilima Long um, in relation to standing over the clouds and the work that's being done on Mauna Kea, which is that the protectors, they're doing physical intervention by physically blocking construction trucks from reaching the summit to begin construction on the telescope. And then filmmakers like myself and a bunch of other like filmmakers and media makers that have been on the Mauna and have been involved in a bunch of different movements, we're doing narrative intervention. And that is intervening on these narratives that say what a leader is supposed to look like, that say, um, and to say that, you know, indigenous native Hawaiian people, they're not only still here, but they're mobilizing and they're leading the movement to protect our climate and protect our land. And importantly, they have been, right? It's not some new thing that's happened out of the blue. Exactly. They have been for so long, but the mm -hmm. narratives have not been there to support that. And, mm -hmm. um, I think with Black Lives Matter and all the, the movement building this summer, that also became a huge thing of like, we need our own media. And when we let someone, when we let the same powers control the narrative around what's happening, it's not going to get us the change that we want to see. Like we have to have that physical intervention and narrative intervention together in order to um, make positive change and make sure the messages that are happening are getting out. And I, I think there's been so many examples of that over the summer of how, you know, certain news coverage has twisted different things that were going on on the ground. And so I think there's like this new wave of, of media makers and creators that see what's going on in um, on the ground, like on different in different movements and want to capture that. And then also are bringing that kind of organizing mentality to the filmmaking process itself. Mm hmm. Yeah. I also, you know, I really appreciate and I'm thankful that so many filmmakers and, you know, also photographers and other forms of more traditionally looked at, like, I guess, more like a different type of art than activism. Like people didn't necessarily always link the two together, but I'm 
really grateful that filmmakers and photographers are out there capturing everything because people don't believe what they don't see, right? Right. <laughs> so like you're saying, like everyone sees all this stuff on news and they're just going to see what narrative is being fed to them rather than searching out for finding like, you know, the information that will give them a better view of what's actually happening in all these different places. Yeah. And it's so difficult and it's yeah. so complex because, you know, obviously the the media that's been telling us who who is suitable for for power positions who deserves um positions of leadership and power you know we've been immersed in that our whole lives so you know it makes sense when people have some resistance or they're not you know quite sure when they're seeing new things but i think it's really important that we're making these changes now because then the next generations can be raised you know knowing these things and knowing um you know, the kind of full potential that they have and not just that they have it, but also that they have a whole like ancestral line of people who have been doing this work and who have been, um, you know, on the front lines of all these different movements. And I think, you know, just like you were saying, there is such a different power of actually being able to see it and to feel it. And sometimes not everyone can be like in those small communities, but through film and through photography, you can get um, an experience of that and get kind of like, a taste of it, start to understand it, even without having to physically be there yourself. How do you get connected with communities that you're not personally a part of or that your team members aren't personally a part of? And then um, when you are doing the filmmaking and starting to put together this narrative, you know, what what's, I guess, what's your process so that you're honoring the, um, the experiences and stories of the people that you're filming? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. That's such a good question. As Pua Case, again, she's extremely quotable, who is in Standing Above the Clouds, said <laughs> when we were going through the process of editing this short film, she said, it's your it's your art, but it's our life. And that's something that I think about mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and I have a very collaborative um, approach to filmmaking where I want it to be a process. I think... I think a lot of, especially uh, female activists, women of color activists, they have had many experiences of the news portraying them in ways they didn't want to be portrayed. So there is some amount of distrust or scar tissue around um, seeing yourself portrayed, and it kind of is something that takes your agency away. So I try to make sure that my filmmaking process is something that returns agency to the people that are on screen. And I do that by by really thinking about like this concept of consent and what that means when it comes to filmmaking. Um, I also have a background in, um, you know, sexual violence work um, and consent work in that uh, um, context. And so I apply that to filmmaking as well. That consent is something that's ongoing and it needs to be informed. So that means if you were okay with me filming you brushing your teeth one day, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'd be okay with it the next day, you know? Obviously, it could be something more extreme than brushing your teeth, but I just as, as an example. Um, so that's one way to make sure that people, you know, they know what this is for. They know what the intentions are. And then also, if they ever felt uncomfortable with something, oh, we don't want you to come film today. Okay, that's fine. Or, oh, like, I don't, I don't, I don't want you to film this, like, certain thing or something like that. That's totally fine throughout the process. And then when it comes to putting together the final piece, we do a lot of, um, watching different cuts and talking through, um, like different changes that they want that we kind of want and just have a really collaborative process that way so that the final product everyone feels really proud about and it can be kind of tedious in the in the back and forth and it can feel a little bit exhausting but um for instance we 
premiered the short film at Hawaii International Film Festival in November. And it was just like, it wasn't completely finished, but, you know, we had all really liked it. We had some like fine, um, finalizing like touches to put on it. But just seeing the crowd, like the theater was completely packed and almost, I would say maybe like 80% of the people in the audience had been on the Mauna. And just seeing everyone's mm -hmm. response, like, that the people in the film, their whole families were there crying, so proud, like, everyone just felt so proud and so happy. And so, you know, to have the the home audience, you know, the people's families, like, all um, feel that way about it means everything. And that's way more important than, like, what some, like, Aspen or New York audience might think about it. Although we do want to make sure that it can bridge, like, all those communities. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I got chills when you were, you know, kind of giving us a picture of what that was like. And I can only imagine because if you're so intentional about telling your, telling the stories of these people in a way that honors them and that, um, you know, reflects like the consent aspect that you just talked about as well. And then seeing their reaction and seeing that they, I don't know. I just feel like that that's so amazing because you think about filmmaking. I mean, I think about like, there's some movies out there where I'm like, I don't know who this was for, but it definitely wasn't for me. Right. right. <laughs> like, like, I don't know, like, who watches this crap? Um, and for documentaries, even there are some documentaries where I watch and I'm like, I'm like, I think this was supposed to be for some, someone like me, but it doesn't end up feeling like it was for me. Mm. Um, and it, it really sounds like with break tide, that's something that you're, you're trying to do is, it's amazing. I, I just want to say that I really like your approach. And it, I'm sure it's difficult, but I really enjoy, I really like that. Thank you. Yeah, it is. I mean, that whole thing about who the audience is meant for, it's so important. And so for us, like the primary audience is always the people in the film and their community. And then, of course, we want it to be able to, you know, reach other people as well. But um, that's always like the main intention. So it can be, I think also with this pandemic time, um, at least my hope is that it has taught a lot of people that these um, institutions that seem like they're so immovable, like these institutions that seem not untouchable, but just so ingrained in how we were raised, our whole, you know, perception of the world, whether it's a college, whether it's like something like the Academy Awards, you know, any of these institutions that are like white institutions. <laughs> I, I hope that this time has showed that, you know, all of those institutions, they were just created by a few people like Break Tide was or like your podcast was. But it's just over time and they were so well resourced that that's why they were able to reach this position. So it's also kind of like it's really important to know who is it that you're trying to reach and what your actual goals are so that when maybe, um, you know, some of these more like mainstream festivals aren't responding, like that's okay, because that's not ultimately who you wanted it to be for, you know, like if they like it, it's obviously mm -hmm. not yeah. bad. But that's not like the main goal for like, um, you know, a white audience in Utah to be like, wow, this really moved me. Like the main goal is that the people in Hawaii are like, oh my gosh, yes, this is exactly what we went through. Yeah, mm -hmm. it kind of brings me to think about you know, I'm, I'm in academia, right? And so in the sciences and research, we're always like, oh, you want to remain not biased or, you know, strictly objective in how you approach the population you're working with or whatever. Um, and, and Diana and I have talked in the past, and I think on some episodes as well, is about how that's just kind of impossible unless you're working in 
a lap setting and you can control everything, but like human nature mm-hmm. and human communities, you can't control that. Um, and I think there's, there's a beauty in letting the authentic nuances and the, the way that communities operate, letting that show through in our work. And I'm drawing, I'm just drawing parallels here with filmmaking as well. Cause I feel like as a documentary filmmaker, do you sometimes receive criticism from people that you're not remaining objective or that you're, you're being biased in how you how you choose to record or um, who to reach out to? Yes. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because I believe that the idea of being unbiased is a white supremacist framework. Um, So Mm. I don't really prescribe to it, but it has been for a really long time, this idea. And it's, it usually comes with being very detached. I mean, I'm sure we all know, like, you know, what traditionally unbiased Mm. means, but it's very gendered and racialized. And, um, you know, there's been a, a history in documentary filmmaking of white filmmakers taking advantage of co- communities of color and at many times risking their lives to get these shots that they want that portray an image of people of color that they feel is right. But no one said that that was unbiased. And the same could be said about mm-hmm. science. I mean, from Henrietta Lacks to the entire, like, practice of gynecology founded on founded on like the pain of women of color like no one's head that that was mm. unbiased when they were doing that so i think this whole idea of being unbiased is like a white supremacist framework that tries to detach us from our own emotional knowledge and that you know these um these ideas of logic and reason have been used as weapons against our communities and um, maybe if they hadn't been, there could be a different approach. But since that's the history that they come with, I think there needs to be something else. And there needs to be um, an acknowledgement that these uh, these modes of feeling and relating to each other that are gendered as very feminine, like being emotional, like being intuitive, like being compassionate, um, they're, they're demonized by like a white supremacist heteropatriarchy, if I may, <laughs> but that those, those are the things that we really need to like, you know, learn about a story. And that's like kind of the, the main parts of storytelling. And you know, throughout history, there's been films about white male leaders that have shown them as super sympathetic, even when they're not. And no one said that mm-hmm. those were unbiased. Uh, no one said that those were biased, you know? So when we want to do the same kind of things of showing, um, you know, female leaders or women of color leaders and giving them um, part of the the behind the scenes, like this collaborative process, there is some pushback of like, oh, that's just like a promotional piece for them. Yeah, basically that. That's just like a promotional piece for them. But it's a lot more than that because it's a lot of time and it's different people's point of views that go into it. And I think a lot of times these kind of critiques only come up when we're talking about BIPOC communities and they don't come up the other way around. Like I know Tiger King was a really big thing early in the pandemic. And I'm like, um, did anyone bring up these questions for that show? (laughs) Oh, Tiger King. (laughs) We were all so innocent back then. (laughs) I feel like I've aged like a thousand years in the pandemic. Like when I think back to myself in January, I'm like, who is she? Who is she? Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so true. I was looking at pictures the other day, actually, pre-pandemic, and I was like, I don't even recognize myself getting ready, cute clothes, being outdoors, and like, I don't even know who you are anymore. Like, going to a party. <laughs> like, yeah. you know that, tr- I'm sorry, this is slightly off topic, but in like rom-coms mm-hmm. and stuff, there's like that classic New York shot where it's like the main character in a mm-hmm. sea of people, and now every time I see that, I'm like, oh. <laughs> 
That's how you say so many people are touching them. <laughs> I mean, well, luckily that can't happen because New York has just been deemed uh, an anarchist jurisdiction. So there's no longer a sea of people, apparently. We're just in complete anarchy with our whatever or nothing that's happening here, literally. So but. absurd. I heard Wait, that was like an like, official thing? Yeah, from Trump, right? Yeah. Mm. He said Portland, New York, and was it somewhere else? I think, I think there, where is the, I feel like there's one other place or maybe in other places, potentially. But I, yeah, Portland is also definitely one of us in anarchy. Mm. I'm like, dang, how come the Bay didn't get on the list? <laughs> because everybody's been inside with all the fires and smoke. oh you're right you're right go outside <laughs> yeah it's difficult to have anarchy when it's so smoky yeah but it's okay according to trump it'll just get cool again because you know today is the first day of fall <laughs> uh, it's so disappointing just oh. everything but it, especially electoral politics yeah yeah <laughs> So disappointing. Everyone listening to this, please, please, you know, pay attention to your local politics and the voting and everything, yes. by the way. I do think this comes out afterwards registration, but... Make your voting yeah. plan, text your group chat. It's not everything, yes. but it's the basic first step. <laughs> yeah. It's something. Yes. <laughs> well, but, happy fall. That's yes, nice. happy fall. How does the, the idea of bias... Um, come up in your fields I think it's pretty parallel with you know what you were talking about I think I mean I in global health like you just said with the example of Henrietta Lacks and just the whole field of gynecology but just larger global health um how it came about was through colonization and people being like you know European settlers getting sick and they're like oh we need medicine and then they start extracting indigenous resources or knowledge um and crediting it as their own and that you know even our textbooks are so reflective of you know like it's it's so colonized i feel like we don't even see it anymore um but even in just general sciences you know the language that we use even in even in like the canonical sciences like biology or whatever or physics we use such colonizer terms you know we'll say like i don't know colonies of bacteria (laughs) Yeah, or, well, it's not even colonizer, just colonizer terms. It's also that the baseline and standard for everything is based on mm-hmm. a white male of a like certain BMI, whatever, right, yeah. Or age yeah. range. Oof. Yeah, and a lot yeah. of the things we know about the human body is based on just, like white men, white male bodies, mm-hmm. which does not apply to someone like us three, right, as Asian yeah. women. <laughs> So I think there, I think there's just a lot there. And, um, you know, as working in social sciences, I, for me, my argument is always, it's impossible to be unbiased as a researcher. Like as a human being, how do you expect me to be, remain unbiased? Like, I don't know. And it goes into this whole thing about like, does that even really exist? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it exists. I think it's, well, as I said, Mm -hmm. I did my spiel already, but I also feel like (laughs) instead of like, this idea of bias, at least for my approach to my work and my life, it's a lot more valuable to have a lens of like structural power, you know, of not of like, mm-hmm. oh, how can I be completely neutral? But like, oh, who has structural power in this situation? And how is that impacting things, you know, and how can my work kind of subvert that? So if that's studying, you know, 
smaller-bodied Asian women as a different frame of reference for medications that people are taking, or, you know, um, centering different kind of people as experts and leaders to kind of change our um, internalized ideas about what that even means. Like, I can't even tell you how many documentaries I've watched where there isn't a single woman interviewed. And it's like a full interview documentary about like the environment or something, a really broad topic. And it's mm. only men that are interviewed. And I know in the sciences, that's even more prevalent. So I can only imagine <laughs> what that must be like um, in your field. But I think like all of these little things, they really ingrain in us, you know, who is worthy for these these kind of roles and who should feel like they own the space and who should feel like they're just trespassing on the space or they're, or, you know, we're um, the one diversity fellowship or we should be happy to be invited, you know, but not like a real Mm. um, stakeholder in like creating the space and transforming it. When you say that you're doing, um, you know, filmmaking as activism and for education, in what ways have you seen that come about? So there's a few different ways. Um, One of the other main tenets of our filmmaking practice as Breakthead Productions is this idea of financial sustainability. So one of the biggest barriers to getting into filmmaking is that it's extremely expensive and a lot of times unpaid or very little paid. So, and, and for a lot of these grants and stuff like that, you need to already have stuff finished in order to be eligible. So it's kind of like, you know, this kind of trap system that a lot of, I mean, it's really across industry, but it's kind of like you need experience to get the experience and it doesn't often come with like enough money to actually sustain a life. So as women of color, we think it's really important that we actually do need to like be paid and need to do this in a way that can sustain ourselves. Otherwise, and, and we're kind of creating this model of filmmaking that is financially sustainable um, because otherwise it's just like, how can anyone who isn't independently wealthy like be in this space? Um, so right. one way that we do that is we work on our original projects like Standing Above the Clouds that are a bit more longer term and we don't have to rely um, on them to, you know, like make our rent, get food and stuff like that. And then we also work with mission aligned um, nonprofits and companies um, to make kind of like small, uh, shorter social media kind of based content. Um, so we've done a lot of educational stuff um, in that realm of, um, you know, we're working on right now um, videos about birth control that's going to be used um, in a bunch of different public schools as they do things online, um, as, as kids will be getting sex sexual health online, which must be super interesting. <laughs> and we've done, um, we recently did a series with the Center for Cultural Power, um, and one of the episodes is about solar power. Um, in Navajo Nation and how the Diné people have been using solar power for like 30 plus years, but it just hasn't really been talked about that much Um, and creating a curriculum around that too about, you know, examining our power, examining our labor. And then with Standing Above the Clouds, we kind of always saw it as a feature length project, but because that takes so much time to complete, um, we decided to create a short first, which is 15 minutes that can be used a lot easier for educational purposes for the activists as they go out um, and tour different places talking about the movement. And then um, also with the accompanying curriculum so that it can be used in classrooms. So we think about that mm-hmm. lot in ter- a lot in terms of both the content and the final form of the video. Like, oh, and we've also done stuff um, around a lot of like different videos around women's health and um, preventative health, breast and ovarian health, that kind of stuff. So um, a lot of that stuff is more social media leaning. So it's like, okay, if we want this um, one minute video to reach the most people, like what are the kind of things that we're going to put in it? 
to to like get that kind of audience and to to spread the the message and the education of it that we want to spread. So I think that's how we see our uh, role in education and activism. And we hope that, you know, all of the the films that we create are educational in some respect. It doesn't mean it's like watching a textbook by any means, but um, Mm -hmm. that there's definitely (laughs) things that can be learned from it. And Standing Above the Clouds has also um, been participating in some educational conferences, which has been really interesting. Um, So we get to, we actually have one coming up, Race Forward. And so it's all about... um, racial dynamics um, and teachers that are doing very like race forward teaching and educating. So it'll be really interesting to see um, the response from those educators. And we've had the opportunity to um, participate in a few others too. So I think, you know, educators are really hungry for new mediums to present things. Um, And especially as things go digital, I think having video content is really helpful now more than ever. So it definitely mm-hmm. plays into to all of those things. And then we see our activism as both, you know, being who we are in the film space and then also the films that we create themselves and kind of, you know, following different activists, different people that are active in different ways and working on different kind of things. So that's how we kind of see all of those things fitting together. And that's honestly one of my favorite things about film is that anything that you're interested in, anything from like snowboarding to like a really specific kind of plant to like this really cool person that you saw on TikTok, like any of those things, film filming could be helpful to it. You know, like you could go and like film with some really cool snowboarder or like do like a like research based project on a plant or like, you know, any of those things, like it can always be um, mm-hmm. kind of amplifying and helping like whatever it is that you're interested in. So I think it's suitable to like a really, um, wide variety of interests and if those interests include education and activism then it's a really easy fit for those things that's a lot (laughs) yeah 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 you mentioned this and i was going to ask because you mentioned it also at the very beginning um how are since stating about the clouds you were supposed to go and do these different um film festivals and showing it how are you going about that now during pandemic life uh, well, we're doing it the same way we're doing this, which is on Zoom. <laughs> um, if you are interested in learning more at Standing Above the Clouds on Instagram, we update with like the different um, places where you can watch the film. And we also have a website, which is just standingaboveclouds.com. But we're really grateful that a lot of these film festivals that we got into and, and have been continuing to get into have moved to virtual and some are doing um, drive-in screenings as well. With oh, the smoke, cool. the ones in California, I'm not sure what the status is on them, to be honest, but <laughs> some some places are doing that. So I think, you know, everyone is just trying to adapt and we're grateful to to be able to share the film virtually, although obviously it is not the same as like being in person and having that kind of community in person. But it's great to be able to, um, you know, have some way to share it, even as everyone stays in their own homes. Hmm. I was thinking, too, just talking about, like, public health and global health and stuff like that. Actually, how I got into filmmaking was, um, it was many things, but this was the moment where I was really like, okay, this is what I need to be doing. Um, I actually had this fellowship, this uh, global affairs fellowship. Um, I went to Wellesley College, so it was, like, this Albright fellowship. And we were broken up into these small groups to work on some of the different sustainable development goals set forth by the UN. And mine was World Mm -hmm. Hunger. And we did this presentation at the end with like Madeleine Albright and all these other like dignitaries about like our solutions to these problems. And I mean, you know, the sustainable development goals, they're very like large issues. Like it'll be like women's issues, like Mm -hmm. hunger. And they Mm -hmm. all had solutions. 
And that's something, I don't know, it just really, like, I really felt it that time. And I had already been doing some stuff in film. And I, I grew up doing a lot of, like, art and writing and performing. But something about being in that space and presenting on these really big global ideas and them all having solutions was very, it was, like, definitely a turning point for me where I was like, okay, actually, what we don't, we're not lacking solutions. We're just lacking political and cultural will to enact these solutions. And Throughout the, throughout the fellowship, we had all these people come and talk to us. And, you know, we were already a, a very pre-engaged audience. Like, we really wanted to be there. We were super excited. And some of the presentations were just not that engaging. And so, you know, I was thinking, what if... And no one used any media. There was, like, maybe one photo the whole time. And I was like, okay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right? And you've been through those kind of talks, right? Where it's, like, hours long and you're like, oh, my gosh. Am I going to stay awake or not? <laughs> But I was just like, oh, this is such a, not easy, but such a, at that moment, like obvious combination of my interests and skills of like bridging these two very, at at least in college, what felt very disparate um, fields, but how like documentary film, filmmaking, media is so needed in these areas when we're communicating about big ideas that have solutions that need to be enacted. I feel like, especially at this point, like we don't have time to wait and like dilly dally on like you know, different things about political will and who wants this, who wants that, like different money interests. It's like, no, the West Coast is on fire. Like people are being hit by multiple hurricanes. Like, you know, all this stuff is happening during a pandemic. Like these problems have solutions. Why are we not enacting the solutions? That's a million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I mean, it's true. I, there, I feel like, um, there are answers, but there aren't, you know what I mean? Like there's, like you just said, there are solutions to things. Literally, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, if he, if he shared his wealth a little bit, um, it could solve a lot of issues <laughs> around the world. But, you know, the, the systems or the whatever power structures that we operate under, I think that's the real challenge is how do we, how do we shift that, you know, and how do we redistribute wealth and how do we redistribute power and knowledge? And, oh, it's so hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and I mean, the whole idea that, yeah. um, that seems like a founding principle of our current capitalist like worldview is that like, oh, the more money you make is like that means that you're more important or you're contributing more to society. When in reality, a lot of times it's exactly the opposite, you know, like right. no one could be doing anything every day that would uh, rationalize making as much money as Jeff Bezos. But like, I bet, you know, people that are way lower on the chain of command, like, you know, working at the warehouses, you know, doing all this stuff, the labor that they're doing actually makes a lot bigger of an impact than what he's doing. And, you know, community organizers, teachers, like people like that, they're doing so much more than like people in finance and consulting. But because of this like pay disparity and our idea that money equals value, like we have a completely skewed idea of um, who's doing what and kind of what that, what the impact of that labor is too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Jelena. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're off, we're off topic now. No, it's no, okay. it's just, it's like, just, you know, having to remember the world that we currently live in. It sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I took a break from Instagram. Like I deleted the app off my phone for like a week and I was like, wow, wow. I feel so happy. And then I got it again and I was like, oh man, I missed so much terrible stuff that was happening. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, right. 
You had peace for a little bit. Yes. I think it's worth it. Yeah, the little <laughs> yeah. breaks are so needed because otherwise you can just get too caught up in like all of it. Yeah, and that's yeah, what you were absolutely. saying in the beginning, right? Taking care of yourself, taking care of your, taking yeah. care of your mind. Was... Your... Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Speaking of taking care of yourself, other than deleting Instagram from your phone for a week, which is amazing, what else have you been doing during this time? Because you, you know, you're working with this content and everything that is also still like very emotionally heavy mm-hmm. and then living during a time that is heavy. So what are you doing for yourself? I've been trying to set better boundaries during this time, um, which has been an interesting process. And I think a really good to start um, in this time and start working on like really intentionally. And it's kind of been a culmination of, you know, since like we started Break Tide in 2018 until now, but definitely a lot more now of like, I remember when I first started, I would feel like every email had to be responded to right away. Like everything, like I would always need to be online, always need to be ready to work, like have to execute things so quickly. And now, especially pandemic now, I've really let that go. And I'm like, you know what? It will happen when it happens. Like I have my to-do list. I have my hard deadlines. But other than that, like things don't need to be answered right away. And just having that space, I feel like has been really helpful. And then I've been um, trying to make sure that I like move my body in some way every day, which I also think I feel like early pen or especially right when the the uprisings had started, like I would just get so sucked into Instagram and Twitter and like all the horrible things that were happening in real time and like staying up to date with them that I would be it would be the end of the day. and I'd be like, I've taken like maybe 10 steps today, like just or like maybe 20 steps, like just to get food and then go back to my room or go to the bathroom and go back to my room. (laughs) But how, you know, getting connected to my body has been so healing. And so I've been trying to start running, which has been kind of difficult, but it's the attempt, I think, that matters. And then also just like moving my body in some way, which has been really helpful, too. Yeah, I I hope you find a lot more healing during this time, because I don't think 2020 is ending anytime soon. Right? <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, OK, December 31st, this is not going to end. The way everyone talks like 2020, it's just, it's back to that, the time date thing that you were talking about too. It's like, um, we know that January 1st will still live here, right? (laughs) Yeah. We'll, we'll still perpetually be in March 2020. Oh my God. And that's the episode. Thank you so much, Jelena, for speaking with us. As a reminder, you can reach her on Instagram at jelena.kl. Yes, and you can also check out her film that she mentioned, Standing Above the Clouds, on Instagram at Standing Above the Clouds. The resources that were mentioned in this episode and the transcript are all up on the website. And as a reminder, if you have any questions, you can reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram and at Twitter at globalcaveat have a moment give us a like subscribe share us with all your friends and family um and yeah let us know if you have any questions yeah and give us a five-star review please 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 on apple podcast so we can try to get some funding yeah it would be super super fantastic and just a little bit of your time and thank you to all our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run especially to those that gave us the five-star reviews And a special thanks to Hot Cocoa for producing our music. Thanks for listening.